0: Why do people only ask themselves deep questions when something really bad happens? Then they forget all about it after, right? And how come people are self-destructive? And third, I refuse to use petroleum. But there's no way I could stop. It's used in my lifetime, is there? No. I mean, Jimmy Carter would have a great electric car by now. I could have a Cadillac Escalade, mm-hmm. then it would be electric. Tommy, that is I wouldn't three... have to ride on my bicycle. That is three questions. Well, I paid my money and I want to fucking answer, so just give me a second, okay? Hold up. This episode is brought to you by William Mitchell Audio. Now, I could tell you all about William Mitchell Audio, but I'm sure you'd rather hear me rap about it. Now, this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. And I'd like to take a minute. Just sit right there. I'll tell you all about how this podcast got sponsored by WilliamMitchellAudio.com. Philadelphia, born and raised on the playground, was where I spent most of my days. chilling out, maxin', relaxin', all cool, all shooting some b-ball outside of the school. When a couple of guys who were up to no good started making trouble in my neighborhood. I got in one little fight, and my mom got scared. And she said you should get sponsored by William Go to William My guest today is Daphne Ewing Chow. Daphne is an award-winning environmental writer with a focus on food and agriculture and commutes between the Southern Caribbean in Barbados and the Northern Caribbean in the Cayman Islands. She has a master's degree in international economic policy from Columbia University and writes for the New York Times, the Sunday Times in London, several other publications, and is a senior contributor for Forbes magazine and honestly, I could go on and on and on, but you didn't come here to listen to me go on and on. You came here to listen to Daphne talk. So what's up, Daphne?
1: Hey, Doug, how are you? Uh,
0: I'm, great. I'm, just, I'm just happy to have you uh, be here.
1: <laughs> I'm I'm beyond excited to be here. It's like the best thing to happen to me in, in months.
0: I was, uh, I guess to let everyone know, like, because we started talking before I hit record and I was like, oh, shit, I got to hit record because I felt like, you were about to start dropping all kinds of knowledge and it was, I was going to miss it. So, so we got into it, (laughs) fortunately. Uh, Speaking of listeners, uh, the new thing we do now is we take a couple questions from listeners. So you mind doing that real quick and we'll just kind of see what people had to ask. uh, I guess it's for both of us. So I'll try and help if, if I feel like I know anything at all, but I'm certain I don't. Okay. (laughs) Okay. First question is from, Yogi Zorananda, uh, Zorananda wrote, regarding food systems, which organizations or individuals have made successful? Oh, man, I don't know what this stands for. S.F.S. Sustainable Food Systems.
1: Sorry. <laughs> okay, so wait, just read that again. Sorry.
0: Okay. I'm sorry, <laughs> I messed up the acronym. I actually emailed him <laughs> and I asked him what the acronym meant and he told me and then I blanked.
1: I didn't even know that
0: regarding food systems, which organizations or individuals have made successful sustainable food systems.
1: Okay. So he's asking, so you'll, I'm going to like try to understand what he's asking and then like you can edit before that.
0: <laughs> McDonald's. So,
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so he's asking like, which, which companies have like, been um trying to make things better or which organizations as in ngos or like i'm trying to understand the question just read it one more time
0: um i actually already put it away (laughs) (laughs) but i mean I, i can remember it from i can remember it uh he was just saying so like like are there any companies or individuals like specifically that you can think the think of that have come up with like a sustainable food system and i guess like what that would mean would be like
1: what it would look like
0: yeah what's it look like and maybe who's doing it i guess
1: okay um in order for a company to i guess totally operate um from the perspective of an entire sustainable food system they'd have to be completely vertically vertically integrated which basically means like all like the transport and the logistics and the manufacturing and the retail and all of that would have to come together as one. So obviously, um, you know, in this world, like it's pretty much where all of that is kind of divvied out and outsourced and shared among various people. And as a result of that, there's nothing that's truly sustainable. um, Because, I mean, basically, truly sustainable would mean net zero and you've got to transport things to places. Um, you've, everything you do, your has a footprint. So you can never be like, you know, a hundred percent sustainable unless, you know, you're doing things for the benefit of the environment and then it sort of balances itself out. And I would say, um, in terms of people who are, trying to do that
0: well while you're thinking can i can i give my answer sure my answer is (laughs) donald uh native americans like four or five centuries ago that's my answer
1: (laughs) yeah and actually it's um people who live closest to the earth are the ones actually you know what thank you for that because my answer to that is that there's actually no company i was trying to put it in a politically correct way yeah but There is no company, no big business that is doing it totally sustainably. What people try to do is give back and try to make it balance out. But the ones who don't have to do that, who don't have to backpedal and like, you know, get involved in corporate social responsibility and try to sort of negate all the ill effects on the environment of what they're doing. They're the ones who are living closest to the earth. They are the regenerative farms that bring in people from the community and um, have the people in the community work on the farm. They respect the soil. They sell their foods in local shops or they sell it themselves. They're affiliated with restaurants. Those are the truly sustainable entities. And I don't know of a big business.
0: Yeah, there's no there's no no corporate analog to independent farmers, uh, and local food production. So, yeah. Yeah,
1: exactly. So uh, definitely, um, I was killing myself because I mean, obviously there are like big food businesses that are trying to do stuff. And for anyone who's even remotely like conscious about these things, most of it is a huge eye roll. And I struggle with it because I want to say nice things, but I'm also like, hey, I, just, I, I can't.
0: There's, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with answering this question honestly. That there are no corporations that are that are creating sustainable food systems at this time. So I I fully stand behind you in in that answer. So Zorananda, that's the answer, man. It's just independent farmers and local food sources and indigenous people. Like that's who's doing it. Exactly.
1: Uh, exactly. And yeah, like indigenous people, because they're they're taking a whole new element into it. Not only are they bringing community into it, but there there's a whole spiritual side to it also that is so connected to the earth. So definitely indigenous people.
0: Okay, you ready for the next question from a listener?
1: I'm ready. I hope okay. I do a better job with that one.
0: Uh, this once again might be one of the ones where I don't like. Maybe it's the way I read them that doesn't help. but <laughs> This question comes from uh, Heather Lavita. And Heather wrote, could you please ask about what is being done about the current dissipating land for food growth? I was worried about there not being enough space to grow food.
1: There isn't. Um, We are definitely um, destroying the earth. So much of the land is being used for agriculture and also in places like, um, well, I live in a small island developing state and we've got very limited land and. Our primary source of income here is tourism. So, of course, rather than valuing the land for food, they value the land for development. So hotels are going up and, and all kinds of, um, developments that promote tourism to promote the offshore sector and agriculture sort of being stifled. And as a result, what you get is factory style agriculture going on in certain states in the world. And it's really unhealthy for the earth. And then you have people who want to be sustainable and use little plots of land to practice agriculture. And they put up like vertical farming systems which are effective but cost a lot of money there is limited land it isn't a threat to our food security because we have so much technology to get around it but yes we do have limited
0: land this actually reminds me of an episode I did on regenerative farming uh, not too long ago and where I learned about something I never even heard of before is called a food forest are you familiar with that where it's like uh, vertical growing to so use less land to grow more food. Is that I mean, I think that's in a nutshell the concept. Is that right?
1: So those are very much figments of the developed world, They're very first world concepts. We don't really have much of that in the Caribbean you won't find much of that in the developing world. It's definitely stuff that's happening in America, which is amazing. And something else I'll say, which I didn't mention before, is that it's also bad to use too much land for agriculture. Because you basically, when you use land for agriculture, typical modern agriculture, that involves deforestation. So you basically have to You're hurting your own biodiversity by practicing agriculture on large amounts of land. So obviously, it's really important to protect biodiversity and and not use up too much land as well.
0: I'm a huge advocate of the, uh, I mean, I guess right now it's just a theory, but the idea of doing, they're like wildlife corridors. So you would pick certain areas in the United States and you would be like, all of this land is off limits to agriculture or any deforestation of any kind. And what it does is it make it maintains a space for all of the natural wildlife and they can move freely between Mexico and Canada through the through the U.S. The US. And the corridors are picked based on what, you know, specifically are the best ways to go up and down. And then that obviously we got to keep feeding people and it can be surrounded on both sides by farmland, but it wouldn't continue to decimate uh, so many of these species, you know, like grizzlies, wolves everything you know i mean so i don't know it's i think that's a fascinating idea and i really think that uh i, I wish that was what we're talking about you <laughs> know like uh these days instead of everybody what what is in the news you know because yeah there's so much
1: exactly news. exactly um, and our version of that in the caribbean um is um i guess trying to practice sustainable fisheries because that's really our forests are actually in the ocean yeah. mostly and so we have like months of the year where you can't catch certain types of marine species um and there are certain parts of the reef that you cannot go you cannot take people even for tourism so that's those are our corridors in the ocean
0: yeah i did want to ask you uh you know you're uh you're from the caribbean uh what what country are you from originally?
1: So, OK, you want to hear my background?
0: Yeah, I want to hear your background.
1: OK, it's crazy. Get ready. OK, so picture it. OK, it started. okay so my dad,
0: my <laughs> captain Jack Sparrow.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. So my dad was significantly older than my mom. My dad was born in 1929 and he was born in Romania. Um, my So my family were Eastern European Jews and my dad was born in Romania. My mom was born in Hungary and my dad actually um, was a Holocaust survivor.
0: Wow. And, I was going to ask you. Yeah. It was like, that's right. You know, that's, that's yeah. World War II. I mean, holy yeah.
1: shit. Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. Romania. Yeah.
0: Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But, so my dad was in a concentration camp in the Ukraine he was a teenager when he got out of this concentration camp and he was taken with a bunch of boys who they believed were orphans. Um, Basically. I mean, they were, they were out there for a while. And then they got taken over to Israel a few years later. And my dad learned how to make watches. This is all really random. And.
0: This is in Israel where he's learning watchmaking.
1: No, he actually learned to to make watches in Eastern Europe. Okay. He made his way to New York and was involved in watchmaking in New York. I'm sorry. I'm like, I'm like, okay, what parts of the story do I skip over so it's not too long? <laughs> and he gets asked to go to Puerto Rico and set up a watch factory there. And so he's like, cool, like I have nothing going on. And he um, goes to Puerto Rico. He sets up a watch factory there. And the watch factory is serving... Puerto Rico and, and U S Virgin islands. And he's selling watches in those two markets. And he goes to Israel on vacation. He meets my mom who had moved there when she was 18. He was only there for two weeks. He totally falls in love with my mom and they got married within a two week period. He was on vacation. My mom is a crazy artist and super spontaneous. And she's like, okay, like, yep, I'll marry you. And she moved from Israel to Puerto Rico with him. Me and my sister were born like nine months later. Well, first my sister nine months later, then me like right after that.
0: And this is in Puerto Rico too? mm -hmm.
1: And when we were babies, my dad got an offer to open a watch factory in Barbados. And so we left Puerto Rico and moved to Barbados and remained there. My sister and I, um, we are both Bajan. That is our identity. Uh, And we have, well, she moved to Houston when she was an adult. But I, outside of undergrad and grad school and one year of prep school in the States, I have only lived in the Caribbean. So I lived in Barbados, Trinidad, the Cayman Islands, and then, of course, I was born in Puerto Rico.
0: Is it pretty easy to uh, travel between countries? I mean, I know that some are harder than others, but.
1: Yeah, um, it's actually not as easy as you would think. A lot of people ask, um, do you take a ferry in between islands? And there are actually, you can't do that anywhere in the Caribbean. Take a ferry. Everywhere is by plane and airfare is extremely high. Like I'm going to Jamaica next week. My ticket to Jamaica is four hundred dollars, and Jamaica is forty five minutes from here.
0: Why can't you take a boat?
1: Um, it's there's no such thing.
0: Oh, that sucks. That's stupid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: And I mean, if I took a boat and tried to go over, like the Coast Guard would stop me and be like, "What the fuck are you doing? Like, it's your ass back to Cayman." While
0: we're while we're on the sub, you know, because this is a uh, a climate related episode, I'm gonna go ahead and I want. I wanna go ahead and say whoever is in charge of whatever the system is, you know how ridiculous it is to make people take planes when they could take a boat. Like, Thank you. You could take a sailboat, you could do you could do literally a carbon neutral trip and it'd be fine. You can still you just go to your port, show your passport, you can still do it all legally. So yeah, anyway,
1: exactly. Exactly. That's I the, mean
0: the president of each of these countries needs to hear this podcast and hear me say that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, like so it's it's pretty much prime ministers that um, lead every country came on as led by a premier because it's a British colony. But, yeah, I, people talk about it all the time, but no one's doing anything about it.
0: Well, we got to put a change to that. Uh, so, OK, so here you are, you're in Barbados and you decide you want to like, does that like Was this like a thing where you were young and you were like, I want to be a journalist? Was there some kind of like uh, motivating factor where you were like, oh, this is the career that I want to choose? And if so, I guess what I want to ask is the story of what made you want to choose that career in the first place? And then how did you become a journalist? Like, what was your pathway to the career you have now?
1: Okay, so I was always supposed to do this, but it it had to chase me. So. I've loved writing since I could write, which was probably since the age of three, I started quite young. And I used to write poetry and stories like all the time. And I used to be really into Barbies as a little girl. And I used, they were always writers, they were always journalists. And I used to like tear pieces of paper and fold them up. And they were newspapers, because of course, the, the internet wasn't around then. So like, I used to make newspapers and have stacks of these little fake little paper newspapers from my Barbies. I mean, that was always my strength. And my other thing was that I was really into from a very early age was I wanted to change the world. And like, since I was really little, like that was always something I wanted to do. So those were the two things. So I go off um, to to undergrad and, and grad school and I did I studied stuff that was like definitely geared towards that. I undergrad, I studied sociology and African studies. And then grad school, I studied um, international affairs with a focus on development. And I thought, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'll probably work for the UN or an NGO or something like that. Um, And it did not happen the way I planned for it to because I was when I was 21, I started dating someone who was a banker. And, um, when I graduated from grad school, well, actually just before I graduated from grad school, he proposed to me and he was living in the Cayman islands. And so I knew I was going to the Cayman islands and I ended up getting a job for a bank in the Cayman islands and everything started to take. So I ended up marrying him here, um, and ended up getting a job in banking and remained in the finance area for years. So we ended up leaving here, moving to Trinidad and then moving back to Barbados. And when I was in Barbados, I was working in venture capital, but not first of all, I was not good at it Yeah, <laughs> and I hated it. I hated it. I was constantly trying to steer the business to do more socially redeeming stuff and getting involved in the environment. And, and, I was still very passionate about the environment. And it was while I was working for the Venture Capital Fund that I said, you know what, I'm just going to start writing on the side. And I was doing it for free, totally for free. And I was being published in the newspaper because, of course, I was a good writer. People started asking me to write things for them and I started getting like little amounts of money it wasn't like it was like you know going it's like beer money and and, <laughs> and 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 writing articles about things I was passionate about and people were sharing it it was good stuff so then one day this um woman who heads up like this massive project at the food and agriculture organization reached out to me, Um, it was a climate change and fisheries project. And she's like, I really need someone to manage the communications for this project. I've read your work. Um, Do you want to do this? And that was like, I was so excited to not work in venture capital. Hell yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And oh, so I, I started.
0: Can I, can I back you up just one second? Because yeah, I have totally. a burning question. When you said that you went and you worked in a bank in the Cayman Islands, that I uh, I just recently watched uh, the latest Narcos, and they were doing the thing with like the Cali cartel, and actually I guess it wasn't the latest; it was one of the Narc. I don't know. It's one, it's that show, but they couldn't arrest the uh, the top money launderer because he was in the Cayman Islands, and the way that the government works there is, if you're in a bank or near a bank you can't be arrested because that's because the banks are so powerful there. So like, so that the, there's like, there's this multi-agency thing going on. So it's like the DEA from the United States is there and they have a warrant and they're and working in cooperation with the Cayman Island uh, Police Department. But the police are like, we can't serve this warrant in a bank and he's in a bank. So you have to wait until he's like, you can only arrest him like in the street or in a hotel. And that's kind of like, you can't arrest in banks. Is that like, uh, to this day, is that how it still is?
1: I have never heard of that. (laughs) Cayman man gets such a bad rap. And I think because of it, they actually make it harder for people to like, even like open a bank account. I had to produce, like uh, (laughs) sell my life away so that they knew it was me. Like give them a blood sample to open a bank account here because they're so scared of getting in trouble because this country gets, such a bad rap and you know going on these blacklists and being monitored and having these a lot of like you know politicians saying certain things I mean it I it's it's hard
0: yeah and I mean I wasn't trying to uh say anything derogatory about the campaign oh, no. at all I was just I, had I know just, you were just seen that and I was like wow that's fascinating If that is truly a law, or maybe it was a law back in the 1980s when this occurred, I have no idea. I guess it would have been the 90s. I think it was during the Clinton administration, and maybe they've changed since then.
1: Yeah, maybe they have. I have no idea, but K man does get such a bad rap. It was like
0: the the police weren't even corrupt. They weren't like they were absolutely totally working with the U.S. law enforcement agency. They were just like they're like, yeah, we will we will arrest this dude for you or with you but it can't be in a bank and it can't be on the bank's property. So you can't even, you can't even arrest them like on the front steps. It's because it's, it's still the bank. Cause it's wow. like, cause they don't want people it's cause it would be so bad for, you know, cause that's, I'm sure their major, uh, industry, right. Is banking. Am I, I could, I could be wrong.
1: Major that. I mean, came on financially has done okay through the pandemic because banking never went anywhere, you know, like people still bank here.
0: It's like uh you know S- Switzerland like speaking of your dad being a watchmaker it's like Switzerland it's you know it's a country that doesn't it doesn't have enough also speaking of agriculture it doesn't have enough land that's you know th- to create enough food for them to live off of they certainly don't sell enough watches but because of the banking industry they're a very affluent country so
1: Correct correct the so Cayman is right up there with Switzerland um definitely um a competitor in the offshore sector for sure
0: So I am so sorry that I took you down the rabbit hole of the Cayman Island banks. Uh, No,
1: but but I want to listen. Anything is game. You could say anything (laughs) like, I just don't even think there's a way you could like take me down any rabbit hole. Well,
0: I do want to continue talking about your career. And I wanted to ask you, like, uh, what are some of the best experiences you've had as a journalist? Or even if you just had like one, like just amazing one you want to share or I mean, however you want to take it.
1: Um, I think. I can tell you in general, the ability to help people get a platform, people who are doing amazing things who would not otherwise get a platform is the most fulfilling thing I can ever describe. Um, It's just so amazing. So here in the Caribbean and in most really small countries that don't get a lot of press, you have people who are busting their asses working doing amazing things like really innovative things really smart people and the world never sees what they're doing cuz either they don't have a lot of money or they operate within small communities and i'm living among these people and they don't feel intimidated to come and call me and say, Hey, you know, I'm doing this great thing or my friends doing something fantastic. Would you, would you be interested in hearing their story and and writing about them? And so I've been able to meet and become good friends with so many people and get into their minds so I have so many friends who I became friends with because I wrote about them and I got to really get into their brains and they're just such amazing people. In addition to that um because of the work that I do in food systems I've been asked to serve as a judge for food systems competitions. And so you get to get in the head of all of these really amazing people with really cool ideas and 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 read these plans of how they want to change the world and it's just it helps you to think on such a larger scale because oftentimes these are people who would not have their voices heard otherwise
0: it's amazing too like when you have the opportunity because it can be overwhelming when you you know if you do i don't know if we were talking about this before we were recording but when you're looking at like the shit that's in the mainstream media a lot of times where you're just like, God, this, you know, this country is just fucked. These people, you know, and everyone hates Everyone hates each other. No one's got any good ideas, so on and so forth. And then if you have the opportunity, like you're saying, uh, when you're just pursuing your own journalism or possibly, like you said, uh, you know, judging a contest and all these minds are coming together, all these people are coming together. And that's what I really appreciate the most is like, People that are not, you know, climate doomers, but people that are climate climate activists, or they do climate action. You know, to you know, don't sit there and just be depressed and do nothing. Do something. You'll feel better if you do something. So that's my opinion on it.
1: Yeah, I, it's amazing because I'm around only positive people who. They're, they've devoted their whole lives to doing these fantastic things, and a lot of them come from not great circumstances. So I can give them this opportunity to elevate their voice and and really do something with their. Ideas and it just makes me feel so good that talented, I have the power to help someone who's really talented who would not have otherwise had that opportunity to get ahead.
0: You know, I'm actually kind of sad that the next question I wrote is this, but I do want to know. So, I mean, after all the positivity that we just said uh, on the other side of that coin, and that would be uh, can you share maybe some of the most uh, difficult or dangerous experiences you've had as a journalist?
1: Yeah. So um, because the kind of journalism that I do, where I'm focusing on um, food and the environment, it actually it for me, it doesn't really get dangerous. Um, The people who I talk to are typically people who want me to be there because I'm helping and I'm I'm giving them a platform. So I, I don't get exposed to the type of danger that someone who was like exposing, like, you know, a drug ring or, you know, like, or is in a war zone, I, because I don't do that type of journalism, I haven't really been in dangerous situations. Um, that said, obviously, they're sad stories that I hear all the time. Um, and, and people who have had to go through an immense amount of hardship. And and that's difficult, but, you know, to bring it to the positive side, I've also been able to help those people and to give them a platform. So do you ever, um,
0: uh, do you ever travel to some of these uh, locations, like maybe in, in, in places that have uh, extreme poverty or uh, like we were saying, like, uh, there's you know food shortages and those kind of things do you do you ever travel to those kind of locations and see it firsthand
1: um so i am exposed to it in a very different way in the caribbean because the food shortages that you see here are not like the food short- shortages that you would see so for example i work for the world food program and a, a lot of the zones that were like other people in my organization would go into like, you know, in Yemen and, and, you know, in parts of Africa and stuff, like people are really, really like, they actually don't have access to food in the Caribbean where a lot of my work is focused, people who are going through food insecurity, oftentimes you can't tell. Um, That person might not have eaten for a whole day or, They might've lived off of rice for an entire week, but because there are a, there are like all these cheap, extremely unhealthy options of food, um, which will make you completely malnourished, but in many cases, obese, or, you know, somebody's like, there are a lot of extended networks where people help each other or like a neighbor would have given you something. So it doesn't look the same. It's when you sit down and hear people's stories and realize how much they're struggling that it's it's shocking. I mean, do you know do you know um the Olympic runner Shelly Ann Fraser Price? She's
0: uh, I'm not super familiar. I'm not a I'm not a big Olympics dude.
1: So she's she's the um up until this Olympics, she was the top 100 meter runner in the world um, alive. And now she's number two. Um, and basically, she grew up in um, something called a tenement yard in Jamaica, which is basically like homes, um, like families that have like um, homes, like humble homes that are around each other. And it's usually typically just like room or whatever. And they're central area is like just like an open courtyard type of thing in the middle it's not part of the structures and they because there isn't room in the houses they come outside and they sit and they eat and she basically lived off of cornmeal out like she would sit on a turned over bucket every day and eat cornmeal
0: that's crazy she was able to reach Olympic status with like such a malnourished diet.
1: Yeah. One of the top athletes. (laughs) Totally. One of the top athletes in the world. And now she has a foundation that helps kids in in that situation as well.
0: I feel like a part of what you were saying too, like does bring a really important point. And I know that the way I framed the question was I was thinking about places that are going through extreme famine or there's a war that's caused sanctions there's no food, there's no medicine. It truly is, you know, people just falling over dead because, you know, it's, it's that horrible. It's that nightmarish, but on, you know, but and another way to look at it is, you know, just like what you're saying that in America, there's people with food insecurity, like you are saying, you don't know it. And <clears throat> I know a certain, I live in Nashville. This is a big city. It's a big city with a lot of money and, you know, tons of corporations here, but the there's some of the statistics are insane. Like for instance, in our uh, metro school system, something like ten percent of the kids are homeless, or uh, uh, it's, they don't use that word, but uh, they don't have a like a stable home, but they don't have a they don't have a particular home. So it, they fall into that category, and so a lot of those kids are relying on school for food. So that's been a big problem during the pandemic. Is a lot of kids becoming uh, hungry, malnourished, and stuff because they can't because they close the schools. And that was the one meal a day they were getting. So these are the kind of things, you know, here in this supposed first world country here in the richest nation on earth, there's food insecurity everywhere. You just might not see it or be aware of it. So.
1: Absolutely. And it's the same thing in the Caribbean. Um, so we have the same issue with kids who um, their one nutritious meal a day was coming from school. And then there's the elderly as well who, um, we're not getting meals because everybody. We had pretty strict sanctions here around movement, and the elderly usually depended on people to bring food to them, and so there were a lot of elderly people who were not getting food either.
0: And uh, you know, I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you another question about just because you do more than just. Uh, I mean, you're you're more than just writer. You you know you do a lot, and I mean I could not get all to all of that inter- introduction. And that's what I was saying is I could go on and on and on. One thing I want to ask you, I'm very curious, what it's like. Is uh, what is it like being a speaker at, at major world conferences and being around those you know, those decision makers and all that kind of stuff? And then they have, you know, and they're they're sitting and they listen to you. What does that feel like? And what's the whole experience like?
1: Um, I think once it's around a topic that I'm comfortable in, which in my case, of course, is around sustainability and food, I. I know my shit. There's no reason for me to feel insecure about that because it's what I live and breathe every day. So that's number one. And number two, everybody out there that I'm talking to and who's interacting and and who's with me is just another human being just like me. Yeah. And either is or has gone through nerves and similar experiences and none of us are any better or any worse than anyone else and so I just breathe through those nerves and know that I'm going to be okay because we are all on a level playing field here yeah just like you know one person's life course might have gone in a different direction than another's but we are literally all the same
0: You've got mail. Hold up. It's time to check the mailbag. Every week on the show, we check the mailbag to see if anyone has written a message into the show, and then we would read that message out loud, and if I have an answer for you, I'll give it to you. So, let's get started. This week's first message comes from Helen Farina. Helen Farina wrote, <clears throat> Why did Chuck Lorre have the words, Screw it, Liz Cheney 2024, on the screen of the show? I was watching... NCIS. Before the show came on, it could have been from the last show. What is this all about? Is he backing her for president in the twenty twenty four election? Wish someone would check it out. American flag emoji. Well, Helen, uh, one thing I gotta tell you first off the jump is uh, the only cop show I watch is Law and Order SVU. I've never seen NCIS, so I'm already don't know that. But here's uh, my views of my own hot take: the Doomsday Glacier. Is probably going to fall off of Antarctica before the next presidential election anyway. So if I were you, I wouldn't worry about it. Thanks for writing into the show. All right, moving on. Our next message comes from Dybe, the Scottish Yorkshireman. And, bro, I know that I mispronounced your name. It's one of those Scottish names with, like, 70 vowels in it. But I'm guessing Dybe is close. Anyway, Dybe asks... What are your thoughts on Scottish independence? Well, I mean, I will say this. I totally fuck with Scotland for sure. But if you guys want to be independent, man, here's what you got to do. So here's the thing. Most people in America, we've seen Braveheart. And so we definitely wanted Scotland to be independent whenever that happened. But if it's going to like happen now, what you got to do is you got to make a Braveheart too. And I need to direct it. And I need to write it. So you need to contact your local constable or prime minister or whatever uh, you guys have over there, tell them the situation, get those tax dollars together, fund the movie, fly me out there, and I will make this. And I'll get you guys free. I'll get you free and independent as fuck. So thanks for writing to the show, Diaby. All right. We've got time for one more mailbag letter to the show. This one comes from Michael Williams. And Michael wrote... While sitting in an airport on a four-hour layover, do you prefer the erotica paperback you are reading to have a subtle cover, or do you prefer the explicit cover so you can enjoy the shocked look on the faces of those who pass by? Uh, shit, Michael, honestly, I gotta be, you know, these days I don't even read uh, books on the plane anymore because the seats are too goddamn small. I've been saying it for years now. As a child, I'm too uncomfortable, so typically I just listen to music or maybe a podcast, but no, nah, man, I'm not usually reading uh, erotica paperbacks to begin with. I, uh, I hope that answers your question. Well, anyway, this has been The Mailbag, and now back to the interview. That's good food for thought. Anybody out there, if you have to give a public presentation and you're feeling nervous, bear in mind, nobody in that audience is better than you. They're just people. So and yeah, take it from I Daphne mean, she's she's spoken to world leaders and told them what's up and did not get intimidated. <laughs>
1: well, you know, the interesting thing is a lot of experiences that I have with like really like amazing people that everybody like looks up to and stuff like a lot of those things will be one-on-one because I'm writing about them and sometimes like I can tell, right? Because they know they're going to be written about, they seem so nervous at the beginning of the conversation. And these are people like who are major, you know? And I'm looking, and I'm like, "Wow, this person is just like me. Like, they're—I can tell that they're nervous. And why should I ever be nervous when I realize that they are just like me? In the same way that I have compassion for that person, I should have compassion for myself and just be cool with it and have fun.
0: And uh, so. This kind of ties into that a little bit, but it's also something that you did speak about earlier when you were saying that some of the, you know, some of what you enjoy the most about your job is meeting these amazing people, hearing their stories, making cool friends, get, you know, get inside their head and like learning cool new ideas. And I think that certainly is part of this, but I wonder if you have any more to add to that when it comes to uh, how you maintain a positive outlook when, you know, because with your job and what you, the research you do you are researching, you're seeing how much damage is being done to the earth. And it's always in front of you because you're always writing about it and you're always researching it. So um, I'm sorry, that was a lot of preamble, but it, what I was just trying to get at is with all of the, all the negativity that you have to look at, how do you maintain the positive out- outlook that keeps you going?
1: I think um with passion and purpose. So I know why I was put here on earth for a hundred percent, which is to, create a way for change and whether it's by educating or exposing people to issues or it's by giving people who are doing amazing things around those issues, a platform to share and and get some traction around the work that they're doing. If I'm doing those two things and I'm living my purpose and I'm helping to make a change in those areas. I think um, the most frustrating thing for me is seeing people with power who are not using it for good or rather are being cowards and allowing um, certain interests to sway them Or to allow them to turn a blind eye to a lot of shit that's going on because it doesn't suit them and it doesn't satisfy their own agenda. That is to me the most upsetting thing and the thing that makes me feel sometimes powerless. Because also in those situations, like you also have to navigate yourself as a journalist in a like in a careful way you have to expose what's going on you have to be careful because you also have to operate with integrity so sometimes like it's really hard to expose things that you're sure are happening but you're not a hundred percent sure like you don't have the evidence in front of you and if you don't have the evidence in front of you and you say something is happening you could get sued so you have to be very careful in how you put out that information
0: you're making me think there's a a story right now and it's it's partly a very good story but it's also partly like some really fucked up shit and it's making me think which so uh, I'm sure you're, I'm sure you're familiar with this but uh the Ecuadorian people uh brought uh a lawsuit against Chevron It took something like twenty something years uh, it was called the Chernobyl of uh Ecuador I guess something like that it was I mean, thousands of people have died from uh, from unethical, fucked up business practices because Chevron was polluting the water. You know, all kinds of oil related diseases. Uh, you know, yeah, you know, like food shortages, and you know, just people getting killed left and right by it. They finally won the lawsuit, and Chevron is supposed to pay them ten billion dollars. But instead of giving them a cent, they've hired like two hundred law firms, something like two thousand lawyers. The 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 uh american humanitarian, humanitarian lawyer who was kind of the spearhead of this they were able to bribe enough uh people in the judicial system here in america to have him illegally imprisoned he was he's still uh imprisoned for almost 3 years he spent uh most of that on house arrest but then a lot of that in an actual prison and the board of oh. prisons and on a misdemeanor they got him on contempt of a judge and put him in for so it's all but it was all just uh basically it was like a, a corporate prosecution. Basically, the the attorney, like the the state's attorney, wouldn't take the case. So, like, I'm not going to pro- prosecute this misdemeanor. And so, they hired a Chevron prosecutor. Uh, they took probably a million dollars in taxpayers' money to pay this law firm to punish this dude just politically and all this shit. But on the bright side, Chevron, you know, they, I guess maybe we'll it. It, it will have a cooling effect on how much in the future they're going to just dump oil onto the lands of indigenous people or, you know, farmland or whatnot. Right. Uh, I'm sorry silly. that I went off the rails on that. It's no. just that you, I, I, I learned about it uh, recently and it just had me infuriated. And then you got me yeah. up on it again, because that's the thing about these people. You know, it's their penalty that they're supposed to pay. is I think it's about 10 billion dollars. And these guys are going to spend $10 billion on lawyers to not pay the $10 billion that the Ecuadorian people are, des- are owed. Like that's, that's their mindset. So yeah, that yeah. is frustrating. And so I guess we really kind of took, so took a turn from uh how do you keep a positive outlook?
1: <laughs> well, well, that's the thing. So there's like the two sides, there's obvious, like, you know, you're aware of this stuff and it keeps me passionate and purposeful. But at the same time, I know that there's limitations around my power, because if I'm in jail, there's nothing I could do from there. I have to be, yeah. I have to operate with extreme integrity um, and never, never state something unless I have the true facts, even yeah. if I'm sure of it.
0: Yeah. And yeah, of course, you know, these corporations are, yeah, they're so litigious and they would do anything they can to try and harm a journalist that is a thorn in their side. Of course. But, but, <laughs> I do want to say, uh, I, I, and I was trying so hard not to do doom and gloom, and, and I'm not going to, because I want to talk about, you were saying like, because you do meet these inspiring, interesting people, you get to go do cool shit. And uh, you uh, recently wrote an article called uh, Darcy, I'm sorry, Darcy depicts food and water insecurity in some of today's most iconic images. And I had a few questions to ask about uh, that article, uh, but I guess the first one for the listeners I should ask is uh, who is Darcy?
1: Okay. So Darcy is like one of the coolest people I've ever met. Um, and he's like an example of why I do what I do. And so like I added him and then I went on his page and Oh my god! Like his work is just like some of the most beautiful photography I've ever seen, and it it's all depicting food and water insecurity, and also stuff around women's empowerment because of, he's from Kenya, and he grew up on basically the um, outskirts of the most biodiverse forest in all of Kenya. And that was just like his childhood backyard. Like if you live next door to the park. Yeah. That was his park. Like it's it like, you know, like blow up brain, you know, the thought of that, that. would be
0: amazing to be a kid growing up next to a rainforest. <laughs> it's crazy.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, in Kenya. So he was super poor um didn't even own a pair of shoes and they were farmers and um he used to have to um take the animals to graze in the rainforest every day as a kid and he just depicted that story to me well first of all obviously i reached out to him and i was like you know i didn't even know that this was his story i actually thought he was like some fancy photographer who depicts food and water insecurity and you know and then I get into his story and I'm like oh my gosh he wore his first pair of shoes when he was 15 years old I mean yeah I I remember reading
0: that yeah that's crazy that was his first uh yeah his first like closed pair of shoes or something
1: yeah his first closed pair of shoes and he only started photography like five or six years ago and he won the biggest environmental photography competition in the world. Two years after he started, he won a massive national environmental photography competition the year he got his camera. And by the way, it was just like a secondhand camera that was that he got from another photographer because when he moved from where he grew up, which was an area called Kakamega, he, he moved to Nairobi to live with his uncle. He um he started modeling and so he knew photographers and this guy
0: yeah
1: yeah. and so the guy let him have the camera and suddenly his whole his whole life went in a different direction
0: wasn't it uh, his breakthrough photo it's a picture of a little boy that's drinking out of a mud puddle yeah i mean i and i recall this just from your story in uh, your depiction of it he was uh taking the photo and then he realized like how sick that kid could get because um from that from the dirty water and gave him like a water bottle but that was the photo that uh shot him up to like that's the one he won the award for right the uh that that gigantic award you were just talking about
1: yeah it was a massive award it was like announced at the UN climate conference um so yeah so basically that child was actually in the same spot where he grew up he went to this his granny and he saw this little boy and he wasn't even intending to take a picture he was taking pictures in the area and then he saw the little boy and but he had already taken the picture and um that completely made his career take off he's judging um wasn't there like also uh
0: yeah like like you're saying that little boy was in the same spot he'd been when he was a little boy except for it had been a completely different place because there's uh I guess, could you describe what what is happening to the Kenyan uh, tropical rainforest?
1: Sure. So basically, um, they've lost a significant amount of this rainforest due to deforestation. Um, The area around the rainforest, people are really poor. And they're using, um, obviously, the trees for cooking. Cause that's like they they're still using, they're still cooking with fire. Um, they're the ground is getting cleared just by like cattle coming through. And it, it there's development going on um in the area and, and it's actually been a massive issue in Kenya. And as a result of the deforestation, they've also there's the water insecurity has been a major issue there for years, but obviously with deforestation, um, it gets worse because a lot of the water sources are drying up.
0: Darcy's also like, I mean, he's behind a lot of uh, humanitarian and environmental initiatives, right? Like, like now that he had made a name with himself for himself with his photography, he's got like a lot going on and trying to reverse some of that damage. Is that correct?
1: yeah, so he's basically bringing exposure to these issues. Um, so he, um, he works with, um, like women's organizations. Um, so one of the NGOs that he's working with in Kenya, um, they focus on nutrition and he, um, so he did a campaign with them around, um, children and nutrition. Um, he did a huge project with another NGO around, um, Female genital mutilation over there. There's something called beating, which I didn't even know what that was until I spoke with him. Um, which is basically part I can't speak to it in an educated way, but it basically has to do with little girls being sold off into marriage at like the age of like nine years old because their parents like can't afford food.
0: Yeah. Um, it's, up.
1: it's so fucked up. And and he was working with this organization to bring awareness around that so we did a lot of work there um he works with um fishing villages um and their problems around food security and his just I mean I would recommend like your your listeners like go um to darshi photography and follow him and give him as much support as possible because he's trying to make a change in Kenya yeah
0: for sure and that's a uh... Spell d h yeah. a r s h i e. And actually, I have a question about that. Um, do you have a a favorite photo from his portfolio? Like, is there anyone that's like that's your favorite one?
1: Oh, I love his photos. He He's very focused on women's rights, um, and he's focused on um water insecurity. And he does a lot of images of women and young girls going to collect water, and sometimes these women and young girls are walking for like over an hour to go and get water. And he has so many pictures in different times and settings of women doing this. And there's just, it's so profound. It's just like, we complain about the dumbest shit.
0: Yeah, we, and <laughs> yeah. you ever had to walk three miles to get water to survive.
1: Exactly. Can you imagine? So uh, obviously like, whoa. you know, that picture of that little boy, like bending over <laughs> to drink water out of a puddle, like, That's something that, you know, it's not. And the great thing is with him, it's not poverty porn. It's not people trying to, you know, romanticize this whole notion of poverty. This is a guy who lived in that area. And it was something glamorous about, you know, taking these pictures of poor people for him. The way you see a lot of people in the Western world going to third world countries and taking pictures of like, poor people that wasn't what yeah. he was doing at all
0: i know several people guilty of that uh particular action
1: <laughs> i know loads
0: <laughs> well yeah uh, everybody check out darcy uh d-h-a-r-s-h-i-e very cool photographer uh but i want to talk about another article you wrote uh it was called uh influencers called on to steer public discourse on the climate impact of animal agriculture and I guessed just briefly, uh, what are some of the major impacts of animal agriculture on the environment, just to begin?
1: Okay, so obviously, um, the footprint of agriculture itself is massive. Um, agriculture is a massive driver of climate change, animal agriculture is the vast majority of that um so you have obviously like you hear about um like cattle and methane emissions through you know burps and farts and all of that um they actually and which is um really 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 um climate change causing and um in addition to that um there are other problems caused by animal agriculture so in order to create land for the animals to exist on there's deforestation you have to clear land so that's another thing so and when you clear land you kill biodiversity so that's another thing and then of course the animals are fed soy corn and the way they create that food for the animals is through massive massive pieces of land with monoculture crops which are these soy and corn crops the soil is completely destroyed by this type of agriculture scientists basically say like you can't fix the problem of climate change if you have animal agriculture being practiced the way it is today which is completely unsustainable
0: and I'd like to add just something to that, like something to do to be aware of. And that's a lot of people that, you know, are potentially in the scientific community or are a doctor or whatever. And they're but they're bad faith actors and they have reasons, whatever their reasons are. But they have reasons to tell you horseshit uh, about the way it works. And I I just recently listened to this guy. I'm not going to say his name. But he's a doctor. He's a nutritionist. And he's you know he's trying to sell you a diet book. You know that's what he's trying to do. And I went ahead and listened to him on this podcast because sometimes I feel like it's in my best best interest to listen to people that I strongly disagree with that I know are full of shit. Just you know just so I am, you know I'm prepared when someone comes to me with a dumb argument like that. And his whole thing was you know because he's all about this paleo diet and you know how how you must eat you must eat meat and you must eat mostly meat or you know. It it wasn't quite that extreme. And that wasn't entirely the point. And I don't exactly know in what way he's financed by the meat industry or, you know, you know, if it's just the American beef industry is like, hey, here's a million bucks. Go everywhere and take your credentials and tell everybody that we need fucking cattle farms all across the planet. And we need, you know, we need 10 McDonald's in every small town. But I digress. What I want to get to is the point that he was trying to make is that he was saying that. Farms that grow plants are actually just as bad as cattle farms, and he's saying, and he's like, and he also said he made some very, very stupid fucking arguments along the lines of like, you know, if you love animals, uh, well, why, you know, because if you make a uh, a farm that grows, you know, kale, you have to kill bunny rabbits, and why doesn't a bunny rabbit deserve to live as much as a cow? I mean, it's oh my god. Well, that's you know, something am <laughs> these the thing is like you know if you if you really don't know if i mean if if you haven't heard if you haven't done any research and you haven't really heard and you hear this guy making some of these arguments you might be like huh i guess he's got a point especially if it kills just as many animals you know and but i mean you just made the point that's this is the thing in order to feed all the cows you have to create an entirely another set of farmland that just grows monoculture foods that you feed to the livestock And then you feed the livestock to the people and it's, it's, it's absurd to say that for any reason to say that replacing a cattle farm with a farm that grows anything else is in any way equivalent. They're not equivalent, but like I was saying, you got to be aware in the scientific community, nutritionists, doctors, they're going to make these horseshit arguments. So I, just wanted to I don't that
1: I I personally don't think that guy is being paid by the meat industry cuz I think his the arguments that you just said are so dumb. I think the meat industry has enough money that could hire someone that sounds smarter than that.
0: I guess but uh getting back to so the the article you wrote was about uh talking about getting influencers and but in this context we're talking about very influential people and uh you know to 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 use, you know, I guess a really great example would be Leonardo DiCaprio. I guess he's like a great example of someone who is on uh, this subject. But aside from him, I was going to ask, who are some of the most important influencers that are trying to make a shift in the way uh, animal agriculture is viewed globally?
1: So I and I'm going to age myself right now because there are probably a lot of people who listen to your podcast who might not know who this is. Do you know who Giselle Buncheon is? Tom Brady's wife. People will know who Tom Brady is. I, know who, I
0: mean, I'm not a big uh football fan, but I I know who Tom Brady is because who how could you not? He's like the most famous football player of all time.
1: Yeah. So his wife, when I guess when I was in my 20s, um or so, she was like the biggest fashion model there was and she they're both of them as a couple are really into regenerative farming i didn't i know that that's kind of cool
0: man i uh i don't know what to think because you know i don't pay like a lot of attention like i said i don't i rarely watch football and if i do it's just the super bowl and it's just a gamble and you know drink beer and eat and you know I, i don't have any skin in the game but i do know that people have some for some reason passionately hate Tom Brady or they passionately love him I don't know I don't get it but if you're telling me that they're uh if they're advocating regenerative farming then maybe maybe I'm cool I'm down with this dude
1: yeah maybe because I also um I sounds like your interest in football is kind of on par with mine And I went to University of Michigan which obviously is a huge football school so for me, like football would be more like, okay, it's a fun thing to do with friends, but I'm not really following. I'm kind of doing something else and socializing. Um, but I don't know, maybe people don't like him because he, he's alternative that way. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so they're super cool. Um, that article that you're talking about the. Organization that I interviewed, the head of the organization, they're a South African organization. Get this, their name is Animal Agriculture and Climate Change. Like, (laughs) it's kind of random. It's actually the name of the organization.
0: Why not? Um, Why not call yourself what you are? Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Don't don't
0: confuse people with your name. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs)
1: exactly. Like there is no room for miscommunication there, and so. The head of that organization, she was basically saying to me that there are a handful of influencers who talk so much about climate change, but they don't do enough to make the connection between climate change and animal agriculture. And for some names, I agreed with her, but I did not agree with her on all the names. So, for example... um, I thought she was being unfair to Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, I think that he has made that connection. Um, The one that I agreed with her on was Pope Francis. I feel like he could do more to make that connection because he is quite an activist um, in terms of his speeches and all of that around the environment. He's very vocal. Wasn't he the
0: first uh, pope to ever be uh, awarded something by PETA? like Because he's like a friend of the animals.
1: Yeah, so not because he was a friend to the animals per se. Well, he was talking about climate change. And also, um, I think he had said somewhere that um, animals have a soul like people do, which I think it was that. But then PETA was pissed off at him as well because he wasn't making that connection. So he kind of it was it, it kind of went both ways. Um, another one that I agreed with her on was Richard Branson. Um, he hasn't really made that connection
0: i don't know um, who, who, who's richard branson
1: he is the owner of virgin um
0: oh he, yeah he's like a
1: the guy who went to space
0: yeah okay I, he's a billionaire right yes yeah
1: yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep um, you don't
0: you don't typically think of uh, any of those guys as do, having done anything cool but
1: no i he's he's a huge disappointment to me you know uh, in the caribbean a lot and he just i wish he would do more
0: i guess obviously we do gotta shout out uh the homie greta thurnberg for sure because no no, i mean absolutely what what a what an awesome way to just come up in the world you know just like like, getting in front of congress and telling them what the fuck's up and then she's making the connection telling you
1: oh my gosh totally like i want to be her mom like i would be so (laughs) proud oh my gosh she's a badass she's wanna, a little girl who is a badass
0: i want to ask you this on this is a, a person that is like if i could imagine anyone that's more just seems like ah, you know what i'm not going to compare and contrast the rock with fucking greta thunberg but i do want to ask you this how many tons of carbon emissions do you think could be reduced if the rock started advocating for everyone to have a plant-based diet
1: the rock
0: yeah the rock if if, if the rock was like I have a plant-based diet. My muscles are this big and I eat plants to do it. And you should do oh, it
1: too. Oh, I get it now. I thought you meant like he was like the biggest influencer ever. I was like, I could think of a few people who could get their message across better than him. Yeah, but you
0: gotta think how I, many, how many like just
1: I get people what you're out saying there are like, now. I
0: want to be like him. And so they're gonna do totally. Especially if you if you I mean people can have huge fucking muscles and, and be completely plant-based. I mean, they've been doing documentaries on that. all the strongest man in the world. Yeah. vegans
1: Exactly. <clears throat> exactly. And um, there are a bunch of guys on the NBA um, who are vegan. Um, I think both Venus and Serena Williams are vegan. Definitely Venus. I think Serena as well. Gosh, there are so many athletes now that are. Well, vegan. Some people
0: are realizing they get uh, more longevity in their sport.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've I've interviewed two NBA stars who are vegans, DeAndre Jordan, Uh, and he's, wait, let me just make sure I get the name of the team right so I can actually sound like I know stuff about U.S. sports. Oh, he left the Brooklyn Nets since then. Okay. So I interviewed DeAndre Jordan, who's with the, or was with the Brooklyn Nets, and he's an avid plant based advocate so he is he has a show around it he has a cooking show he has invested in an alternative egg line and i forgot the name of it and that's cool yeah and he invested also in beyond meat a lot of celebrities have invested in beyond meat um and he's just and he when i interviewed him um he was at the top of his game And then there's Bismack Biombo, who's also another NBA star. Um, He's from Congo. Um, He's also a vegan and he's a militant vegan. Like his diet, I'm just like, how do you even live? Like, it's crazy how strict he is. But these guys are like at the top of their game and they're vegans. I think like the amount of athletes that are vegans, are enough proof that you can get your protein from plant-based sources. And
0: it is amazing too. Like when you think about like who are people that influence you as just people that you admire, you know, like the word influencer is getting a uh, a bad name because when people think influencer now, you think of some asshole on Instagram that like takes pictures of themselves in a, uh, a Lamborghini or on a yacht. And then they post some quote that written by like, gandhi that they don't fucking subscribe to and they don't you know like that's what you get when you think influencers but when i was thinking like you know a thing that affected me personally was uh kobe bryant he wasn't trying to influence me it was just an interview that i read with kobe bryant and he was talking about meditation and that he meditated before every game and as a matter of fact that's like how he decided he wanted to retire is because his meditation was always about basketball and he, he let his meditation guide him and more and more he would his meditation would go away from basketball. They wanted to go to other things. And that's when he knew it was time to quit. And that was like, to me, I was like, that made me want to meditate. And it's, you know, right. that, so that's, that's, a that's what I think what we mean by influencer. I mean, like totally a person that you totally. admire for whatever reason, ath- athletics or for whatever reason, and they do something you want to do. So the rock man, Dwayne. Yeah. So this- I get,
1: I get what you were <laughs> saying now. I was like, is he that big? But now I, well, he is physically that big, but oh, but he's also,
0: I mean, he's the highest paid actor in Hollywood.
1: Is he? I had no idea.
0: Yeah. No, nobody gets a a bigger check than the rot. So if you, if you can get that guy and everybody, you know, like they follow him on all the social media. He's always just in the gym working out and he gets billions of views. He should just be like, you know what I did? I just ate a salad made out of plants and I'm lifting weights (laughs) and I'm still this big just he would just have to like do a lot of like uh protein powder and beans and stuff
1: i'm gonna go and look at what his diet is i, I, think, it was, it's a, I think it's it's I think it's
0: actually kind of disgusting i think it's something like oh like, really i think he eats like five salmon for breakfast and like five <laughs> chickens for lunch okay <laughs> <laughs> i will not be
1: writing about him
0: that was a that was a long time ago when i read that it could have changed by now
1: oh, um yeah. but i gotta That's ask you
0: we, we got more to get to. And I know that uh, the next article has got some interesting stuff as well. And you wrote one. Uh, you wrote an article called Community Will Create Action in Global Food Systems Dialogue, says World Food Prize Laureate. And in this article, you quoted Dr. Lawrence Haddad saying he believes that the most excluded among us uh, need a seat at the table and will help to drive meaningful change. What do you think he meant by that statement?
1: Okay, so remember earlier in our discussion how I was telling you that one of the most redeeming parts of my job is that I get to bring out the voices of people who would not typically have their voices heard. So that's what he was getting at. So basically, we were having this discussion. And by the way, Lawrence Haddad is a rock star. He's so cool. I've I've done three articles with him now. And he's just such an amazing human being. Um, Just super humble. Won the World Food Prize in in 2018. And he headed up Action Track 5 at the Food Systems Summit, which was the largest food systems event in history. just a rock star. And he, me and him were talking and obviously we're, we both operate in the food system space and we're both academics at the end of the day. And we are the ones who are trying to drive food systems change, but we've never, either of us ever worked a day on a farm. Neither of us, I will not pretend that I have. And he's like, who am I to tell a farmer What to do when I don't know the fucking shit they have to go through every day? I'm sitting here in my air conditioned room writing these, you know, like reports and stuff and saying what they should do. And they're out there in the hot sun making food for us to eat and are among the most food insecure people in the world. They are the ones who need to be at the table telling us what we should do. And so as a result of that, they opened um, all kinds of platforms leading up to the Food Systems Summit to allow people from all backgrounds to come to the table and give their views and to create events and, and, and have a free space on these platforms where they could have like a point of advocacy around their ideas and their experiences. And in addition to farmers, there were women, there were people from marginalized communities. And one of the most important groups that almost always get laughed out, it's changing now, was young people. So yeah. you had like 15 year olds sitting there and <clears throat> talking about change and influencing their friends to sign this pledge saying, I'm not going to eat this kind of food because, you know, like it's, it's associated with X, Y, or Z negative environmental or health outcomes, or, you know, it's not fair trade or whatever else. And these are kids doing that. How amazing to have an inclusive movement around food. It, it's, it was the first time ever to have an inclusive global food movement.
0: Yeah. And then like. Like you're saying, it's and it's uh, obviously it's so very important to get different you know marginalized people involved, let their voices be involved. People that are never getting to have their voice, and like you're saying, uh, you know, you don't work on a farm. Uh, Doctor Haddad doesn't work on a farm. A lot of these scientists don't work on a farm. So I mean, which is fine. Everybody's got their role to play, but a lot of the people that are on these farms really need to be heard. But and I think the way you, you couldn't be said better, but the way you said it. That there's really truly what could be more important than getting young people involved, the youth involved, because these people are going to be the ones, you know, they're inheriting the earth from us, you know, and they, you know, they deserve to have a chance to have their voice heard to say, hey, I'm, um, you know, shout out Greta Thunberg again, but like, you know, all kids should be able to be like, <clears throat> I want there to be a viable, food system when I'm an adult I want there to be clean oceans I want to be able to breathe the air so you gotta involve the kids man you can't leave them out it's it's absurd you, you know
1: well I'll give you just like the coolest example like so remember I told you that I've like done three articles on him so the second one I did was actually around the involvement of youth and food systems change and so he brought one of the young people that he works with onto the call so the call starts and we're kind of all getting warmed up and I'm asking questions and it's all very formal and she hasn't spoken yet. Her name is Maureen and she's from Kenyam. And so Lauren speaks and, um, and then Maureen comes on. And the first thing she does is she's like, so let me tell you, she calls me Daff, Like, I've never had someone come on an interview and call me deaf. And it was amazing. It was like, she just brought this fresh energy to the room where she might be half our age or a quarter of our age or whatever. And she's not intimidated by anyone. She knows who she is and what she wants to do. She doesn't have all these hangups that adults have. Well, she's actually an adult ready, but a, a young, very young adult. And and she was just chill. She's just, you know, leaning on her arm. She's like, let me tell you, Daph. It was awesome. <laughs> cool.
0: But Daphne, I got to tell you something really important. We're getting dangerously close to the lightning round. I got to explain okay. to you how the lightning round works. Uh, this is the part, this is the game section of the podcast. This is where you can, okay. like, if you answer all the questions correctly, you win. Uh, I have a really good feeling you're going to win. But basically... You uh, you have no time to think, so this is a completely non-cerebral. This is all gut reaction. So when I ask a question, don't think about it. It's whatever the first thing pops in your head. That's the answer. All okay. right, you ready for the lightning round? Yes. Okay. Best restaurant in the entire Caribbean.
1: Oh my gosh! Best restaurant in the entire Caribbean. Um, shit! Oh my gosh! And I can't think. Okay, but it's no. I can't say that one. Um, Crap! Yeah, just say
0: whatever, whatever your gut says, just <laughs>
1: okay. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. Okay, this okay, is
0: okay. All this. Also, this is like a stomach-centric question because it's what do you think is the yummiest food?
1: Okay, best restaurant in the whole Caribbean. My friend's restaurant is a restaurant called Cayman Cabana. It's owned by Luigi Moxham here in the Cayman Islands, and they specialize in farm-to-table. The, all of their meals come from local farms. And their best meal is a coconut ceviche, which is fantastic with locally grown sweet potatoes on the side.
0: Yeah, right. You sorry heard it about that. first. Is that <laughs> Cayman Cabana? Yep. All right. Yo, next time, listeners, next time you're down in the Cayman Islands making a deposit, drop by Cayman Cabana and get some uh, really dope ass food. All right. Your favorite movie that takes place in the Caribbean.
1: Oh my gosh! Why are you doing this to me? Um, That's shit. an awesome question. <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, uh, James Bond, Jamaica.
0: Oh, this is James Bond in Jamaica. Which which mm-hmm. James Bond was that?
1: And actually, the James Bond movies were written in Jamaica. Uh, well, not oh, the oh, yeah, guy,
0: oh, I did know that. I did know that. Uh, that yeah, the guy that writes James Bond was living in Jamaica.
1: Yes, he was um, at Goldeneye. Goldeneye resort he had um a, a house there and he wrote them and at le- at least one of them was shot in Jamaica
0: yeah and Goldeneye was probably one of the best James Bond movies and it was an awesome video game on Nintendo like way back in the day that's an old school game it's yeah. really fun so all right shout out uh <laughs> What was the question I asked you? Oh, James Bond. <laughs> yeah, out. yeah,
1: best Been movie he be shot in the Caribbean.
0: All right, then we're kicking ass at this. All right, your favorite musician or band from the Car- Caribbean?
1: Okay, living.
0: Oh, they don't have to be alive.
1: Okay, this is going to be so, but just like eye rolling, stereotypical. But i was say I, Bob Marley. Yes, I am, <laughs> and because he his music was just um from another dimension and it's relevant for every generation his lyrics um all the musical people that have come after him you know kind of draw on him and, and you know who's amazing as well um that a lot of people a lot of your listeners may or may not know um, is a uh, so do you know what soca music is sopa soca.
0: Soka. Yeah. Uh, we were just talking about this uh, in December. I have a had a guest on here. He was from Guyana. Okay. And he was talking about Soka. I don't know why. I don't know why that would be something that you would listen to in Guyana as well.
1: Yeah. The whole Caribbean listens to it.
0: Okay. Well he was, yeah, he was, cause we were talking about a big ass festival they have in Guyana. And he said that Soka music is what the festival's all about.
1: Okay. So, so it was probably their carnival. So yeah. Our biggest soca artist is an artist called Mashell, Mashell Montano, and he's just he's from Trinidad. He is amazing, 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 um and also a massive environmentalist too. So, also stands for positive stuff.
0: Oh, uh, what's his name again?
1: Mashell Montano. And he's also an environmentalist.
0: All right. Shout out Mashell Montano. I'm going to check that out and put it on my uh playlist later tonight. Um All right. Here's this one. We kind of got into this a little bit, but fresh eyes, because this is the lightning round. So you have to just go super fast at it. If you could convince three people to become full-time influencers for climate action and environmental awareness, who would you convince? And I'm telling you, you have like a magic power. You could just go up there and you tell it, you're like, do it. And they do it.
1: Okay. So these would have to be celebrities, obviously. So I would say, um, Rihanna being one and obviously she's from my home com- home country. Um I would say um let's see who's like super super loved. Um oh my gosh, you're stumping me because I'm like gonna think of like intellectual <laughs> icons because I'm Lightning. like
0: short. <laughs> um,
1: sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, I'm going to say um
0: Who's that that, uh, that dude that just got Rihanna pregnant?
1: Oh, my gosh. What was his name? What's his name? I can't remember his name. But-
0: I can't believe I'm blanking he's- on who got Rihanna pregnant, too.
1: Yeah, I'm <laughs> blanking on his name completely. Well, obviously, um, that means
0: he's not a good influencer to pick if we can't think of his name.
1: Yeah. And the thing is, I'm like thinking of people who are already influencers like Jason Momoa. He's a huge environmental influencer. Yeah. Um, And I would say like push it harder, Jason Momoa. Um, and um. Who else? Who else? Who else? Uh, maybe
0: you could pick someone who like sucks, who's like doing bad stuff, and you and you you make them turn good.
1: Oh my God, Donald Trump, man! Uh, yeah. <laughs> He's got a lot of supporters. Work. Like, imagine if he went good. Like, he would he could change a big chunk of the world if he started promoting some good stuff.
0: I don't know because I know like you know he started like a fire that I don't think he, he controls anymore because remember that like, he he gave yeah. that speech and he was like. Hey, you should get vaccinated. And the crowd fucking booed him. And those are his people. So man, what if he said something like, hey, you guys shouldn't eat hamburgers? Jesus Christ. Yeah. Probably they'd probably turn on him. (laughs) But still, it would still be awesome. So yeah, that that so Jason Momoa, Rihanna, Donald Trump on tour together, the Save the Earth tour. (laughs) All right.
1: That's so funny.
0: This is this is uh you know what, just like, let's end it on like a, this is like, you know, in the spirit of Bob Marley, let's end it on a redemption note, you know, a triumph note. Uh, What do you think is one of the best examples of people being able to hold a corporation accountable for an environmental atrocity it committed?
1: Oh my gosh. For me, like when people suffer the most is when there's like a lot of publicity created around the shit they're doing. Um, and oftentimes they don't really hurt in terms of a lawsuit like the situation that you just explained but they a lot of people stop buying from them yeah. using their services and that's how they get hit.
0: Ooh, I've got a good one but I, this is your interview so I, never mind.
1: Tell me tell me.
0: Okay well this is just from a past guest. Uh, he was on here doing a he's, he's the um, he's the uh, head ambassador for Save the Boundary Waters here in the here in North America, and there's a dirty, rotten mining company that wants to completely just fill the Boundary Waters, all this pure, untouched wilderness land, with the like, the silt and shit left over from their. Um, they want to mine for nickel. Anyway, uh, the government, you know, there's a lot of people pushing for this. A lot of very powerful companies behind this too, like on the, on the good side. And they just got a 20 year moratorium on mining. So for the next 20 years, they can't touch it.
1: Wow. Well, okay. So, and I, I mean, so obviously a lot of people brought cases against Monsanto um, and like, I see the most recent news story here is Hawaii. They pled guilty to illegally using and storing agricultural chemicals in Hawaii. And they will pay, well, this is not a lot of money, but when you add up all their fines, so this one is they pay, they're paying $12 million in fines. So on Wikipedia, they have a list of Monsanto cases. I mean, so many people.
0: That's like if I went in the street and just like beat a random person with a baseball bat and the cops came up to me and they're like, that'll be. 10 cents
1: <laughs> yeah exactly fucking
0: equates to man
1: yeah so let's see um
0: but yeah like you said it adds up i mean
1: well there's so many cases yeah. against them
0: all right well people you heard it here first go sue monsanto for something man <laughs> oh my god I'm, I'm this podcast is gonna get sued by monsanto daphne I've got one last question to ask you it's the most important question of the, of the entire interview. And that is, uh, where can people, uh, find you check out your work, all that stuff.
1: Okay. So, um, please, 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 um, follow me on social. Um, my handle on Instagram is weird. It's Daphne underscore Ewing Chow underscore writer. Um, on Facebook, it's Daphne Ewing Chow. on Twitter. It's Daphne Ewing Chow. on LinkedIn. It's Daphne Ewing Chow. Um, and on Forbes, where you can see the majority of my work, um, it's, um, www.forbes.com backslash sites backslash Daphne Ewing Chow.
0: I know. Well, I would highly encourage people to go to that because it's so easy to navigate. It's got an archive. You can go back and like pick and choose which articles you want to read. So that's a really good website to choose for Daphne's writing. That's my personal uh, take on it. I just want to let you know that's and also all the articles that I brought up in this interview all came from Forbes.
1: And and um, just in case um, you have trouble spelling my name, the link is in my bio on Instagram. Or you could actually just Google Daphne Ewing Child Forbes too.
0: and Also, her name is in the description of this episode. So look at your phone.
1: There you go. All
0: right, Daphne. uh, Thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. This was so much fun.
0: Good night.